All right, we're continuing on in our study through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're going to finish up the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to do 713 through 29, and uh, let's go ahead and begin now in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this sermon that our Lord has given to us, uh, that we might know uh, the right way to go, the right road to travel, Lord, uh, the right Christianity to follow, uh, that you have not left us in a sea of differing opinions, but you have actually communicated through your word the correct way to go. And I pray that as we look at the sermon and we look at Matthew, you open our eyes to see what you've given to us. I pray that uh, we don't throw the Old Testament behind us and say that it's no longer relevant for Christians, uh, for then we would be rejecting your teaching here, but instead that we would receive it in all its fullness in you, uh, in order to honor you as our Lord and King, not only in our mind and in our confession, but also in our deeds. Lord, we we pray that uh, you would give us a view of the future and what is to come, and let it dwarf any uh, minor concerns that we have in the here and now, that we might always be looking to you and uh, to the future glory And let us also fear, Lord, the future judgment that we might pay close attention to what you've spoken. Again, Lord, we seek all these things to exalt you and for the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in chapter 7, Christ begins now uh, a warning. And so here's the warning from what he has given. He's, He's told us, hey, you need to listen to what I've spoken to you. And, um, and if you don't, there's a judgment coming. And so he says in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now I want you to notice that, uh, he uses the word enter into enter, enter by the narrow gate. Enter what? What are you entering? Well, the idea, of course, is that you're entering into the kingdom of God. Now, um, it's clear that by enter and, and following this road and all that sort of thing, it's not talking about the eschatological kingdom of God in terms of the, the consummation of the kingdom. It's talking about the kingdom here and now. So understand this in Matthew The idea that the kingdom of God is the kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament where the Messiah will rule the world. It's the new heavens and new earth. But Matthew is saying that kingdom in an already not yet sense has come now. And so the kingdom of God is here. It's not just to come. And so he'll go back and forth in Christ's teaching. It'll refer sometimes to the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God as a future thing, referring to the ultimate kingdom. But, but then it'll talk about the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God in the here and now. And it's going to be really talking about the covenant community. It's going to be talking about the church. And so it's very important to understand then that you're entering into the kingdom. But when you, you enter into the kingdom, you can enter in two ways. There's in, into the visible church, into the visible kingdom in, in the here and now. And one of those ways is the narrow road. And it's, it's hard, it's even described as like your shoulder to shoulder, or it's, it's something you have to kind of squirm through. It's difficult to actually go along this road, but that's the road that leads to life. And then there's another road into the kingdom of heaven, that is into Christianity, into the church, into the religion of Christianity in terms of um, the, what you think Christianity is as a religion, and that's the wide road. Um, that's the road that actually leads to destruction. And what you begin to see in Matthew, and and he'll revisit this again and again in his parables, uh, in the parables of Christ, um, is that there are two Christianities within the church. There are two different peoples in the church. There are wheat and tares. There are sheep and there are goats. And so there are actually two Christianities within the church. And one is the most common one that is held, the most common one that is practiced, very important, the most common one that interprets things 
like the Pharisees interpret things, interpret scripture as the Pharisees interpret scripture. That's the most common Christianity. That's the way of destruction. And the text says that many, many go down that road. As opposed to the way of life, the road of life is a narrow road that only few, few within the kingdom of God, few within the church find. And this begins a theme in Matthew to where you'll see the many and the few. I want to read you some verses uh, from various places in Matthew that talk about this. Okay, so of course in 7.13 here you have the many and the few. Later on in verse 22, we're going to see that the many actually will come to Christ on that day saying, Lord, Lord. Uh, but he, he'll actually say, depart from me, I never knew you. We'll look at that in a minute. 9.37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the people who are actually going out and doing what Christ commanded to teach all that Christ commanded to the world, to go into the world, are few, it says. In 19.30, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The many who are first, that you actually think are, you know, the Christians who are, are you know, honored as Christians and whatnot. Actually, they'll be last, meaning they're not going to be uh, considered the Christians in the end type thing. So the many will be that. In, uh, in chapter 22, there's a longer sequence, uh, 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized the, his servants treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen." And so for the many are called, but the few are chosen, showing that there's many people invited to the kingdom of God, but they, in parallel to the, the uh, sower, the, the parable of the sower, um, the many actually don't follow Christ. They've got other things to do. Life has strangled out the word and the command that Christ has given. And so they are, they are not obedient to Christ, and therefore it's the few that actually do come and obey the word of the Lord who will be saved. In chapter 24, verse 5, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. We'll look at this in a little bit as well, because it has parallel to chapter 7. Uh, verse 10 says in, in chapter 24, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. That's This is the many within the church. Very important. Many within the covenant community. Not many versus the world's many and the fewer the Christians. It's in the church, in the kingdom, there are many. Uh, 24.10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so it's this, it's this, uh, this theme of the many versus the few. The many end up falling away. The many end up being deceived. It's the many within the kingdom, though. The many that the false prophets get a hold of. The many that actually are uh, influenced by these false prophets 
and the many that go off to lawlessness, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Um, <clears throat> the second theme that we're going to see, and uh, it, it comes into the next section here, which is that of fruit and the false prophet. So let's go ahead and uh, we'll read that now. Uh, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every, wait, are grapes gathered from thorn, I hate the way that they translated this. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Therefore, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, this is another theme that Matthew is going to have throughout. We've talked about this a little bit before, but I want to read again verses that go throughout the gospel that talk about the idea of fruit. In uh, 3.8, this is John talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, the, the scribes, and everybody that comes out in that direction. It says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." Now, again, I want you to notice he's talking to the religious leaders here. He's talking to the teachers. He's talking to the rabbis, the pastors. This is very important for when we talk to Ma- about Matthew in this passage, because ultimately this is going to be a rebuke to teachers. Uh, chapter twelve, thirty-three: Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Again, talking to the Pharisees and talking about their teaching. Very important. Again, we're going to come back to this in a minute. 1326, those planted by God, this is in the parable of uh, the farmer who plants the two seeds, or he plants the seed and then uh, Satan basically comes and plants a seed. And of course, the first farmer is God. Um, 1326, those planted by God, the wheat, bear fruit. But the tares planted by the devil do not. Uh, in 2119, uh, Jesus curses the fig tree for not bearing fruit. In uh, 2133, he says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Uh, Verse 43, Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So the idea of fruits throughout are basically the idea of obedience, that they actually follow what Jesus has commanded. And what Jesus has commanded is an expansion of the law, uh, an expansion of the law and the prophets and the morality of the law and the prophets. 
So this leads us then into our next section. Uh, not uh, in, It says, uh, of course, from beware are the false prophets, you know them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, there's the many again, will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I want you to notice here that this is connected to the false prophets, false teaching. And we we talked about this before. This is what Matthew ultimately is talking about. He's talking about false teachers, false prophets who deceive the people with their false Christianity. That is, they basically teach the wide road, the road that leads to destruction. That's the type of Christianity they're teaching. That's the type of religion they're teaching. And so what is the wide road? Well, the wide road is, is very plainly stated. They don't do, the wide road doesn't do the will of the Father. It practices anomia, lawlessness. It does what it wants. It doesn't obey what Christ commands. It doesn't obey the Old Testament morality and the expansion of the Old Testament morality that Christ has given now in the Sermon on the Mount. And so it's very important to understand that the false prophets here are not talking about people who just like don't teach the Trinity. It's talking about those who teach the righteousness of the Pharisees, those who teach as the Pharisees teach, which means to loosen the law. Notice back in 517, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So nothing in it, nothing in the Old Testament in terms of morality, as we'll see throughout Matthew. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever loosens one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, we talked about that. That means that person will be damned. It doesn't mean that they're going to get something in the, in the, you know, the closet in heaven. It means that they'll be cast out. They will be dishonored by heaven. They'll be thrown out. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the, the wide road is teaching scripture like the Pharisees do. How do they teach it? They relax it. In fact, we can identify through the sermon five different ways that the Pharisees teach falsely, that they become false prophets and, um, and end up teaching something that leads the people to lawlessness. And uh, here they are right here. Um, five ways pharisaical false teaching leads to lawlessness and then ultimately to damnation because of the lawlessness. One, they loosen one of the moral commands of the Bible, even the least of the moral commands, by telling people they no longer need to obey it. Does that sound like a, a lot of antinomian dispensationalism to you? Teaching people, well, that was the Old Testament. Uh, we don't have to obey the, that morality anymore. We have a new morality. So we're, we're not going to listen to that anymore. I mean, I just, I just got done with a, a sermon critique where I was talking about the fact that we no longer uh, need to have the morality in terms of having the same disposition as God toward the wicked nations who are in rebellion against God. Um, we somehow need to do something new, ignore the Old Testament, do something new that Jesus is supposedly commanding us that's new in the New Testament, and, um, and therefore we don't do that anymore. I, I would say that that might qualify and be extremely dangerous. Uh, two, the, another way that pharisaical false teaching leads to uh, lawlessness is 
It loosens one of the moral commands of the Bible by telling people they don't need to apply it beyond the Bible's own specific reference. In other words, they narrow it down like the Pharisees, right? So adultery is just about physical adultery and nothing else because the Bible doesn't explicitly say anything else. But now that Jesus has said, well, it applies to a couple different areas, we might do that, but we, we won't apply it to any more. And so whatever the Bible explicitly says, we'll stick on that. If you have a pastor that ever tells you, um, I only teach what the Bible explicitly says, and I don't, go, I don't go anywhere beyond that in terms of application, you need to run screaming out of that church. That's a false prophet, according to chapter 7, according to the Sermon on the Mount. Three, another way that uh, people teach the pharisaical false teaching that leads, leads to lawlessness is that they teach people that they don't need to take care of other believers in need as long as there are good excuses. Remember that whole section. So you, you have good excuses as to why you don't take care of Christians. It's like, nope, there, there are no excuses because you can pray about it. You can, um, you can still not worry about your retirement. You can do all sorts of things to take care of, of Christians. There's no excuse. For they elevate and teach rituals as that which is pleasing to God while de-emphasizing the moral teaching of the Bible. So in other words, what really pleases God is these rituals. And you can see this in Roman Catholicism quite a bit. I think this is the easiest place to see it. Obviously, I believe that it's also in the Protestant Christianity. But I do think it's easiest to see in Roman Catholicism in terms of no matter what you do, don't worry. We've got some rituals you can do that will please God. So don't worry about how you live. Now, that's not official Roman Catholic teaching, but, the, but emphasizing rituals to the degree that are emphasized, um, it ends up leading to lawlessness. This was Luther's whole problem with indulgences. His whole problem was that, is that, whoa, whoa, indulgences is not requiring repentance or for you to lead a godly life. It's basically saying you can lead whatever life you want and then go pay some money and then you'll be forgiven of your sin. Well, same thing. You can just go live during the week, all sin, you know, just sin the way you want, and then go confess it to a priest and say 40 Our Fathers and 30 Hail Marys and blah, 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 and light these, many, these candles and that. It's like, yo, <clears throat> that's a teaching that leads to lawlessness and damnation. And that means that the Roman Catholic Church, by emphasizing ritual to that degree, over morality, because the morality can be dealt with by the ritual. Notice the morality is not dealt with, and this was Luther's criticism as well. Morality is not dealt with by extra acts of love or anything. It's not by necessarily just, you know, the, the cross itself, although they would say the cross is coming through these things. But really, it's just, it's just, it's viewed by most people, the masses, that you just do these rituals and that cleanses you of sin. And so it doesn't matter if you lead a godly life. So it leads to lawlessness, anomia, and ultimately to damnation. And therefore, it's a false, it's, a, it's an institution that's a false prophet. Uh, five, they teach in such a way as to loosen one or more of the moral commands by the way of implying that it's just one of many opinions. And the hearer is free to choose whatever interpretation sounds best to him. Now, we're going to see this at the end of the sermon but ultimately, it's in the way that they teach the truth to make it sound like it's actually one of many opinions. It doesn't really matter which one you hold. Just try to hold one of them as long as you're trying to obey God. No big deal. And by doing that, you're gonna, it leads to lawlessness because people are going to end up doing and picking whatever they think is best. And they're not going to actually be following the law that God wants them to follow. Notice if, if it's not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, it's the person who does the will of the Father. Well, what's the will of the Father? You have to actually like discover that by reading scripture in context. You don't get to pick one of many options and, well, I hope that's the will of the Father. I guess that's good enough because I thought it was. No, it's doing the will of the Father, not guessing at what it is and doing something else. And so, again, we'll talk more about this in a minute, but the way that Christ teaches versus the way the Pharisees teach truth, it, 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 one leads to righteousness and one leads to antinomianism. One leads to lawlessness. The person deciding for themselves what is right and wrong rather than following the will of God.
um, all of these ways of teaching, all of them strengthen the autonomy of the individual by allowing the individual to decide what to do with his life with as little restriction from God's sovereignty, little restriction from God's reign and kingship as expressed in the scripture as possible. They all allow a greater freedom and self-willed authority of the individual in some way. They also therefore represent the most desirable form of teaching by religious people who do not want to submit all things to God. Hence, teaching in this way causes the masses to look upon the teacher as a humble man who is not asserting authority over them, which causes them to honor and to love him, and therefore pharisaical teaching is a type of teaching that looks to be loved by men over God. All right, let's go back up then to verse 24. Everyone therefore, so the therefore connects to what Christ just said. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now, I want you to notice here, the rock, a lot of people are like, well, the rock is Jesus. And it's like, well, okay, yeah, I mean, ultimately we, we understand that. But here in Matthew, the rock that Christ is talking about is the teaching that he just gave. The teaching he just gave and the way that he teaches it is the rock. So the rock itself is the teaching of Christ. If you build upon what Christ just taught, that is, you expand the law, you're looking to obey the law and the prophets as a follower of Jesus Christ in order to, you know, it, your, your fruit evidences is evident uh, in um, the fact that you're obedient to the law and the prophets. Ultimately, then, you, the judgment will come and Christ will say, well done, and you'll enter in because you actually pursued the character of Christ. Because of faith that was uh, given to you by God, you actually pursued Christ you pursued holiness, you pursued to be obedient to him. Christ was truly your Lord. It wasn't just a claim of you saying, Lord, Lord. Christ actually was your Lord. And so because he actually was your Lord, you enter in. But if you hear these words, I want you to notice, both groups hear what Christ has said. Both of them hear it. Both of them may be like, amen, Jesus. We both agree. You know, we all, all agree. But the other people hear it and they don't do it. They don't build upon the rock, meaning they don't live out what Jesus has spoken, even though they may agree with it, even though theoretically that's their ideology, they believe it, they amen it, they don't actually obey it when it comes down to it. These people are the foolish people who have built their life on the sand. So it doesn't really matter if you can identify where the rock is, if you're going to build your house on the sand. If you build your house on the sand, if you live out a life that is contrary to Christ, it doesn't matter that you know the Bible. In fact, it's worse. It doesn't matter that you know what Christ taught. It's worse. Because the judgment's going to come and your house is going to be destroyed. I forget which uh, Puritan said this, but uh, there's a quote that says, Woe to him who goes to hell loaded with sermons. And uh, that's precisely the idea, the idea that, that he's heard the truth of Jesus Christ, um, and yet uh, he does not actually obey, does not actually uh, accord his life with what Christ has said. Now, I want you to notice then, this is all related to teachers. This is related to the people who come in sheep's clothing, which many people have noted might be shepherd's clothing, meaning they're pastors, they're elders. And remember what I said before, that these people in these positions of power are elders, they're pastors who are then mistreating other Christians. They're not obeying this. They're slandering other Christians. They're, they're divorcing their wives. They're, they're lusting after other women instead of not being faithful to their marriages. They're lying to Christians, using God even to lie to Christians. Um, they're too worried about their material possessions. They're not giving to other Christians. They're not loving enemies within the covenant community. 
And they think that's okay because, you know, I'm a Christian. I, I, it's all right. I'll be forgiven in the end. And they evidence that they actually don't know Christ because they're not looking to obey him in the fullest. And because of that, they're following the wrong road within the church. And they may look around and say, well, everybody else is doing it. Yeah, the many will be following this false Christianity where they say amen and don't live it out. The many. And if you are going to feel justified by men rather than the words of Christ, then it's easy to find the, the masses, the largest group, actually going the wrong way. You'll have a lot of company on that road. But if you want to find the way of life, that is to actually follow Christ, not just say amen to his words, but actually try to live them out, you're gonna, it's going to be a lonelier road. And it's going to be a harder road. But life's at the end of that one, and death and destruction is at the end of the other. And this might be shocking for Matthew's community. I think it's probably shocking for us that within the visible church, the bulk of people, that is the many, are the ones who are deceived following this false Christianity. The many are looking to a certain righteousness. I mean, how many times have you heard in church that, yeah, you know, I don't, I, don't need to, I don't need to worry about this issue or that issue because the Bible doesn't explicitly say I have to. It's like, oh, man, that is, that's a Pharisaical doctrine right there. And the great irony is that people think Pharisaism is when you are expand the law, when you expand the scripture. It's like, oh, you're expanding stuff. You're going beyond the explicit. That's, that's Pharisaical. It's like, no, you've got it backwards. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees are the ones limiting it. The Pharisees are the ones loosening it. Christ just said that. That's the righteousness of the Pharisees. They loosen the moral law. They emphasize the ritual law. In fact, they expand the ritual law to a ridiculous degree. I mean, just read the Mishnah or the Talmud, which is Pharisaical Judaism, just, you know, and, and it goes on into Judaism today. So, the, uh, the righteousness of the Pharisees is the teaching of the false prophets. It is the wide road that leads to destruction. It is the people who are practicing lawlessness. It leads to lawlessness. Because when you start loosening the law and you act like, well, you, know, you don't have to really obey that part of the Bible. You, know, you don't really have to worry about those morals and, and that sort of thing. When you start doing that, you start teaching people that, well, maybe is this really the word of God or not? Or maybe I am left to my own. It just leads to lawlessness. Or you start teaching uh, that, that rituals, heavy emphasis on rituals, and that's what God is really uh, you know, uh, pleased with. Then ultimately you emphasize rituals then and your moral life can kind of go by the wayside. Um, or you do... What I think the very last text, which is not Christ's words, but Matthew summing it up, summarizing the type of teaching, the way in which things are taught that lead to lawlessness. Let's talk about this now in verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Um, now, I think this kind of creates a little, little bit of an inclusio. We, we talked about the righteousness of the, the scribes and Pharisees. And then he talks about Pharisees in this, and now we're back to scribes here. I want you to notice uh, that he does not teach like their scribes teach, and it's not talking about the content. It's talking about the manner in which he teaches. He doesn't teach like they teach. He teaches with authority. Now, you need to understand the way that they taught was consistent with the fact they wanted to be loved by men. This is why people teach this way today. Well, the way they taught was, you want to know what you should do in life? Well, Rabbi Akiva says this, and uh, Rabbi Shammai says this, and uh, Rabbi Shimeon says this, and Rabbi Meir says this, and Rabbi Hillel says this. So, I mean, you know, you pick one. They all fall within orthodoxy. It's all fine. Just pick one of what you, you, you need to do, what you want to do there. 
And what that does is it allows the person to remain in authority of what they do. They get to decide. It, 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 it keeps their autonomy intact. And because you've given them that options, you've not put any authority, you've not exercised any authority over them to say, no, this is right and you need to follow it. And you, you've not restricted them. You've not actually put any authority on them at all. And therefore, you will be viewed as a humble person, liked by people and loved by them. Now, if you assert authority over people like Jesus does, you've heard this from all your rabbis, but they're all wrong. This is the right thing. You're to do it. That's asserting authority over you. And the word for astonished here, it says the crowds were astonished. Um, even though it can mean like, you know, they're shocked, uh, they're amazed, they're shocked. In Matthew, it tends to have the idea that people are shocked and upset, like upsettingly shocked. Um, the way that Christ has taught them is not the way they've been taught before. They're shocked by it, and it's a bit upsetting. I mean, you kind of see, I mean, as we've gone through this, it's a bit upsetting, the way that he's taught this. Um, people are upset with me for teaching it the way that Jesus taught it. <clears throat> um, with authority, saying, no, this is right, everything else is wrong. It's completely different. Now, now, why does that lead to lawlessness? Because again, then you can just pick and choose what you want. You remain in authority. You're never submitting to Christ as Lord. And you end up just doing what you think is right in your own eyes. Well, that's what anomia is. Anomia doesn't mean you don't have any law. It means you have your own law. It means you've chosen in the word of God, you may, you may make some of the word of God part of your law, but ultimately you've decided what's right and wrong for yourself. You've used the Bible, you may use your experience, you may use other things, but you're deciding. It's not the definitive certainty of Christ saying, no, this is the way it is, and this is what I want you to do, and that's it. And you don't get to choose other options that contradict what I've said. And so this type of teaching is part of the wide road versus the narrow road. That if you teach like the Pharisees, that's the wide road. Give people multiple options. And I'm not talking about you just put out different positions and then you go through them and knock them out and you take one. What I mean is, is that here, here are multiple options and I'm not going to guide you into which one's right. So, so many pastors are like, well, I personally believe this, but you know, there's multiple options here for you to have. Yeah, that's, that's leading to lawlessness. If you see a pastor who teaches that way, you're going to have a church that is lawless. You know, they'll be talking about grace all the time, grace, 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 but it'll be licentiousness, not grace. People will do what's right in their own eyes. They'll have multiple Christianities there where people are doing morally they'll they'll be doing different things and thinking it's okay that's evangelicalism for you well we all have our opinions and this and that and the other thing and ultimately that's pharisaical teaching jesus didn't have multiple opinions he had one this is it do it that's it but i say to you this is the way it's exclusive and we don't like that we don't like exclusive teaching we find it arrogant, um, it's restricting, we find the person asserting authority over us because teaching does assert authority. There's a reason why we don't let like women teach over men. It asserts authority to teach exclusively. Now, if you're just going to lay out 100 different opinions, then great. But I mean, you're not really teaching anything. But if you teach with authority, you're saying, no, these are wrong and this is right. And there's an exclusivity to truth that is offensive to people. But the few in the church who are his sheep will hear his voice and they'll travel that narrow road in order to obey him. But you're going to get a lot of flack from the many. Now, I want to go back to uh, a passage that we had read uh, previously when we were talking about, you know, the many, because I want to uh, look at the parallel here in, in chapter 24, starting in verse 5, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So notice the many false prophets, and that's what it is. The many, the many and few are the, the actual teachers. Uh, 
that follow the right way and teach the right way. So there'll be few pastors out of the many pastors who actually are teaching the right Christianity. Then there will be few people out of the many Christians in the church who will follow the right way. (coughs) Now, let me caveat that real quick by saying it's few in comparison to the many. It doesn't mean few as in there's like going to be like a couple people saved. We understand from the book of Revelation, there's tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe tens of millions even who are saved. We don't know. But we do know that according to Matthew, according to the teaching of Christ, that that's the fewer number among those who profess to be Christians versus the many. That the many actually will be the ones who perish, even with the name of Christ. So in verse 10 of chapter 24, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another within the church. Remember that whole thing, Christians hating Christians. And many false prophets, there you go, will rise and lead many astray. So it's not just that this is for false teachers, it's for those who follow them. Many false teachers, many fall astray uh, because of them. And because anomia, lawlessness, will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The love of many will grow cold. The love of the many will grow cold. In the world? Well, no, look at history. I mean, people are barbaric throughout history. The world, they've never had a great love. The Roman Empire did not have a great love. Um, Genghis Khan did not have a great love. The um, you, you know, all of the empires we've ever seen, they don't have great love. People are really selfish throughout. It's talking about people within the church because lawlessness is increased because of these false teachers and their teaching. Lawless, lawlessness will be increased and therefore people will not love one another through the law as they're supposed to. They may have oogie feelings for one another, but ultimately there'll be no real love Acts of love where they restrain themselves from doing evil to one another and where they do good to one another by taking care of one another. That will grow cold in the church because of this teaching that leads to lawlessness. So it's very important that we understand that false prophets are not just those who come and say that Jesus did come in the flesh. That's in 1 John, right? Or the deny that Jesus is the I am. That's also John. We tend to think, well, these false prophets, they teach, you know, a different Christianity in terms of its theology. That's true. And the Bible supports that. But false prophets also teach a different Christianity in terms of its morality. So you might have someone who's like, yeah, I believe the Trinity and you're justified by faith and I believe all the solas and I'm a Calvinist. Ah, but you know what? You can go ahead and get divorced and remarried. No big deal. You can go ahead and, you know, practice homosexuality. We're all fallen humans. I mean, you know, Jesus just wants us to love people. Uh, you know what, you can go ahead and split the church over race issues because, you know, there's a lot of heartache there. We, we we have a lot of stuff to work through. It's okay to, like, you know, kind of leave your churches and leave them loudly. You're a false prophet. I don't care that you can cite the Nicene Creed and you, you may cite, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Three Forms of Unity. I don't care. This isn't talking about doctrine. This is talking about the morality of the Bible and what you do with it. Not only whether you teach all of it to its fullest application as Christ commanded us to teach, and you teach it in such a way that you teach it with authority and not in such a way as though it's not really that big of a deal whether you adopt it or not, like the Pharisees would, that is going to determine whether you are actually a true, genuine teacher who's teaching what Christ told you or a false prophet. All the while claiming, Lord, Lord, didn't we believe in the Trinity? Did we not recite the Apostles' Creed? 
Lord, Lord, did we not know the Westminster Confession and fight for it on the internet daily? And I will reply to them, depart from me. I, Udapata, at no time knew you. You who practice lawlessness. You are shepherds who are actually ravenous wolves among the sheep. You are destroyers of the people of God if you are a pastor who teaches in such a way, and you are going to hell if you follow such a teaching and support it as a layman. For the many false prophets will rise up because the many will be there to follow them and support them and pour their money into their ministries and like their type of Christianity and publish their memes and on and on and on. But the many pastors along those lines will perish because they don't actually know Christ. And the many who follow them will perish. But the few who follow the narrow road of what Christ has taught, seeking to follow his holiness, his goodness, under his lordship, to bear the fruit of regeneration, of actually having faith in Christ, bearing the fruit of that confession that Jesus is Lord, by doing all of the law and the prophets in terms of what it teaches about loving God with everything you've got and loving your fellow brother in Christ with everything you've got. Those people will enter into life. That is the teaching of the Gospel of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount is the introduction to that teaching. This teaching will be repeated over and over and over again in the Gospel until the very end. And so this is so important for us to understand. Because we are in just a sea of false Christianities. It's water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. Because you go into a church and you're going to get pharisaical teaching one way or the other in most churches because it's the many. And even if the Bible hadn't seen that, if you were to calculate it, you'd find out that it's the many. So my my prayer for you today is if you're hearing this message and you're in this type of church that teaches this way, get out of that church and get into a church that's going to teach you with authority and teach you all the whole counsel of God in terms of not just theology, but the morality you need to obey. The, The character of Christ, that's all we really mean by morality. It's the character of Christ pursuing him. Pursuing his righteousness, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, above all other things. That's my prayer for you today. And for those who are in good churches, man, support those churches uh, to the hilt. Just do everything you can to support those ministries and just thank God that you are actually in these ministries. Reach out to other Christians who aren't. Uh, have have empathy toward other Christians who are not in these churches, who don't get it, who may be blinded by these teachers. Save these people. Don't si- simply say to yourself, "Oh, well, you know what? Their church, their church believes in the Trinity, though, and their church, you know, that they, they believe in these confessions." Yeah, but what is their church teaching about, like sexuality? What is their church teaching about things like um, whether it's okay to, like, you know, break up over race issues? This is important that we understand that it's not just, orthodoxy is not just a matter of doctrine. There is an orthopraxy that determines whether or not you actually are Christian. It's not just orthodoxy. It's not just doctrine. It is doctrine. It's not less than, but it's more than. Very important for us to understand. And we'll pursue this more and more as we go through Matthew. Matthew will just bring this out over and over again. Because ultimately, he's trying to apply it to a people who think, because they're Orthodox Christians, they can actually mistreat Christians. And it's no big deal. They'll be forgiven in the end. And Matthew's trying to say, not according to the teaching of Christ, you won't. Be real careful about that. 
And so, again, we'll look at it more as we go through the gospel, but let's now bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for this teaching. Uh, It is, I think, uh, shocking to us, as it was to the original crowds, that those who profess you, those within the church, are actually on the wide road to destruction because they are following a type of interpretation of the Bible that limits what you have to say to your people, that limits your commands so that it only goes so far in their lives and no further, so that you cannot reign over all of their lives, but rather keeps you in only parts of it, that they may reign over themselves ultimately, that they may retain the lordship over different aspects of their lives Oh, Lord, I pray that you just knock those things out of the way in all of our lives, that we might submit all of ourselves to you in every way. And we start doing that by teaching the whole counsel of God and not fudging on any of it. We don't fudge on what we teach, and we don't fudge on the way we teach it. Father, I pray, Lord, that we look at these things uh, with conviction understanding that our lordship cannot merely mean that we, you know, prayed a prayer and called you Lord. And it can't mean that we merely entered into ministry and did tons of ministry for you. And it can't mean that we simply like did a bunch of rituals and we went to church in the right time and we sung these certain songs and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately it has to do with whether we truly made you Lord in loving God more than ourselves with all that we have and loving one another as we love ourselves. Oh Lord, I pray that that is the true uh, fruit of our life that gives birth to all the other fruits. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.